0: delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town.
1: Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. Episode 81 features part one of Oscar's conversation with Bob Bradley. Over the past 41 years, Bob Bradley has been an integral part of the success of the University of Kentucky's student-athletes. Starting off as an academic advisor in athletics, to laying the foundation for the Center for Academic Tutorial Services, to multiple associate athletics director's positions, Bob Bradley's influence on student-athletes will continue to have a great impact. Bob Bradley will take us to the other side of the student-athlete when it comes to academics. We'll learn how he was hired at the University of Kentucky and why Cliff Hagan really did hire Bob. In the first installment of a two-part series, you also get a unique look at the role of the academic advisor for athletics and how Bob Bradley dealt with student athletes and the coaches. How did a computer glitch become the catalyst for cats? who was Miss Sampson, and the contributions that one former athletics director continued to make despite being retired. Oscar and Bob will also discuss some of the current issues concerning academics and the student athletes today and which former UK Athletics director was against revealing team GPAs. You're going to like the stories that Bob Bradley shares with you and Oscar and you're going to love the commitment and dedication he had to the University of Kentucky and its student athletes. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs Chow House and his guest Bob Bradley. Bob,
0: for the first time in 40 years now, it's October, and you're not trying to keep three or 400 kids eligible or trying to get them through their classes on to agree. How does it feel?
2: Well, it's different. You know, I miss the kids. Uh, I don't miss, miss a lot of the administrative stuff, obviously. I don't think anybody does when they leave and the corporate stuff. But, you know, in athletics, you're caught in a world where it's a lot of corporate. But, you know, a lot of it is making – not only students feel good, but fans feel good. That's a mission, and 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 not only making sure that students feel good about themselves—not then, but when they leave, they look back and say, "This was an experience I'm proud of, and I'm proud of being there," and and uh, I miss that part of it. I miss that.
0: Most of the life, well, all life—the forty years you spent here in Lexington, Kentucky—but. Kentucky, You were born and raised in Rochester, New York. Yeah, south
2: of Rochester, small town, south of Rochester, Hornell, New York. And I came down here to grad school in 71, got my degree in educational psychology and counseling, and uh, started coaching and teaching at Lexington Catholic High School. And then went from there to Lexington Junior because they had an opening for football. And that's what I wanted to coach. Catholic back then didn't have football. In those days. And um, although John Ray tried to get it, his son was going to Catholic, and he tried to give us the equipment and everything, but they just didn't have the money to put it together. But anyway, so I went from there. Then I went over to LTI, which was the two-year college on campus, the university's two-year on campus as the coordinator. I was a counselor, then coordinator of counseling, and then went over to athletics. Did you ever play any sports growing up in high school? Oh, yeah. I played football, basketball, and baseball in high school. And then I actually went down to school in Salem College in West Virginia, to, to play football and uh, ended up playing sh- very short time and then decided not to.
0: So how did you wind up from your earlier career in high school here over to UK? Well, it was,
2: at, it was a funny story. I was, uh, you know, I was the coordinator of counseling at LTI, Lexington Technical Institute, which, you know, which was Lexington Community College and. And uh, Ben Averett, a guy who worked with me, he was a practical joker, but he came into me and he said, man, you know, they're going to hire an academic advisor for athletes. He said, you ought to do that. He said, man, it's right up your alley. You're an athlete. He said, you'd be great with these kids. You should do it. And I said, "Mm, I'm not going to. No, they've they've got somebody. You know, they'll have somebody in-house. I I mean, I know how those things work. And he said, well, you're crazy. I think you need to put your resume out. He said, let's get your resume out and go ahead. So I just sent a resume. I didn't even update it. Sent it over there, and, uh, and I got a call two weeks later, and the secretary said, uh, Bob, I have a Mr. Cliff Hagan on the phone. Well, I knew it was Ben Avery, because I knew <laughs> Cliff Hagen was going to call
0: me. Yeah, right.
2: So I picked up the phone, and I said, uh, Bob Bradley. And this guy said, Cliff Hagen, Bob. And I said, hey, Cliffy, how you doing? <laughs> and there's like the longest pause. And I said, please don't tell me this is Cliff Hagen," And he said, please don't tell me this is Bob Bradley. <laughs> And he said, look, I've got 247 resumes, and I like yours. I like what you've done. I like the things you do. And he said, I'd like you to come over and sit down and talk to me. So it was a real honor just to go over. So I went over. And interestingly enough, I had been going over and playing basketball at lunch. You know, Cliff played basketball and every we had day. Many,
0: we've had many podcasts. And one of the central things, if you were in good, you got to play basketball with Cliff. But you better lose. You better not win.
2: Well, I was going over. Yeah, that's true. Or he played another game. Yes. He yeah. never lost. So yeah. There was another game. <laughs> But uh, anyway, I so I went over and uh, when I walked in, I was going to take it. I told him I, I'm going to bring an updated resume. I said there's a couple things not on there, so he said we'll bring it over. So I took it over and Barb Isham, you know his you're executive assistant. Yeah, said called and said, Mister Hagen, do you want to visit with this guy? Yes, send him in. I walked in. He went, you will you play basketball at lunch? <laughs> he said we could use another good basketball player. You need to be over here. So I thought, well, that's how you get the job, you know. You're, how, you big a, how big was how
0: big was the staff, or the people that that worked with student-athletes as far as uh, tutors and everything at that time.
2: Well, Oscar, you got to understand that the whole athletic department was probably less than 50 people. Yes. And and I, this was in 77. And so, you know, my mentor at the time, I'll tell you, it was funny. When I took the job the first day, we were on that old part side of the Coliseum where the old ticket office was and, you know, under the balls there. And I walked out of my office, which was down a hall with no ceiling. You could hear birds flying or bats or something up in there. And I walked out to the hallway, and this gentleman walked up and said, excuse me, may I help you? And I said, uh, no. I said, you know, I'm, I work here. I'm a new academic advisor of football and basketball. And he went, oh, well, have you met the most important person in this organization? And I said, well, I met Mr. Hagan. He goes, no, 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 come with me.
0: I think I know so he takes me down
2: with. the hall, he goes into this office, and he walks behind the desk, he sits down, he says, Frank Ham, most important person in athletics, glad to meet you. <laughs> and I sat down, and he became my mentor. But it was funny, the reason I mention this, Frank used to always say, whenever you're out in the concourse, anywhere, if you run into somebody, you, you introduce yourself, you say, may I help you? And you take them to where they need to be, it's the ticket office, or whatever they're looking for if they're lost. And so I always did that, and I said, you know, that's great. Well you asked how big we were, we were like 50 people. Well, a few years ago, I quit doing that because every time I did it, I'd walk out in the hall and I'd say to somebody, oh, may I help you? And they'd go, I work here. Say, <laughs> right. oh. They're four oh, okay. or 500 over okay. there now. Yeah, I mean, there's so many now that it's, you know, I don't know all the people that are there. It's really sad in a way. I mean, we used to go to lunch together. We used to have a party together each year, all of us. And, you know, the, that's one of the things you lose with that growth.
0: Uh, your, your mentor really wasn't your mentor very long. He lived pretty early after you left. well he was there for a while
2: he was there for probably 10 years oh was he
0: yeah 77
2: probably till 80 something 87 Mm -hmm. he retired well you remember he retired and this is this is a great story frank retired you know and then and larry and i were pretty close to frank and uh frank retired before cm came in and what year was that when cm came in 86 89 no, CM came before that, didn't no, he? No, he came in. 89. 89. Okay. When well, Frank lived. retired three or four years before that.
0: All right. Now so we talking we're about Frank Ham or Frank Downey? Frank Ham. Oh, okay. Frank
2: Ham. Okay. So then Rosemary, his wife Rosemary, passed away. Mm-hmm. And Larry went to CM and said, listen, there's this guy, Frank Ham. And Frank won't live six months with Rosemary gone. I mean, he won't unless we do something and get him in here. So CM said, well, what can we do? You know, And he says, well, I'll bring him in and we'll just have him get balls autographed or or do something and we'll take it on some trips, you know, and CM so I can't pay him. And Larry said, I know, I know, I'll talk to him and everything. So he got Frank in there and we'd have our staff meeting every, every, you know, week. We'd have we'd have a big one every month and and our staff meeting and and CM would call on Frank and say, Frank, and Frank would go, well, let me see. I got a requests for twelve hundred and forty-seven basketballs to be signed this month, and I got a thirty-two footballs. And everybody, "Oh God, come on, Frank, pick up the footballs. let's get more of the footballs." And, and uh, But he was just anyway, he was the one they had gotten the pledges. Gene D who became the AD at Boston House, left here. When Gene was here, he'd gotten all the pledges for the Nutter Training Center when they built it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They hadn't collected the money. So when he was gone, Larry went to see him and said, "I only know one guy and get this money." Frank Ham. And Frank went out and got all the money, including there were two or three people who had passed away and their families went ahead because it was Frank Ham. That's the kind of connection
0: he had with the community. And Frank was brought here
2: by John Ray. Right. He came here with John. He was up in South Bend mm-hmm. when John Ray was a defensive coach in Notre Dame.
0: And I remember uh, Frank telling me, and it was true, that when John Ray was let go, that Singletary called me and said, Frank, there will always be a job here for you. Right. He
2: said, I want you to stay. Yes. Yeah.
0: Frank was... He was great. He was Mr. Ambassador when you needed somebody to go out into state with somebody to represent the He probably gave four or five speeches a week. I mean, he was out constantly either lunch or dinner
2: doing speeches.
0: When you came over, what was your main duties? Was it just strictly keeping football and basketball players eligible? And then when did it branch out to being much more than what it was at the time?
2: Uh, actually what happened, they, they hired me to be advisor to football and basketball and told me, Cliff said, listen, you don't have the manpower. You got you and two GAs. And one for football, one for basketball. You don't have the manpower to be doing all these other sports. And the coaches are supposed to bring in kids that can succeed. So don't you do anything with those sports. Well, you know, one coach comes up to me and says, Bob, I got this kid I'm really worried about. You mind, you know, looking after him a little bit? And I said, yeah, I don't mind. And Cliff, it was funny because Cliff would call me every saw often to go, you working with a lot of kids that aren't football or basketball because, you know, they just they don't look like football or basketball players to me that are coming in your office, and I said, well, I just give them advice, and I don't, and I probably had over a period of time thirty or forty from other teams that I was working with, and um, you know, so then when we built the Cat Center, Cliff let me expand and bring in a couple of people, and we brought in Barb Denniston and a guy named Phil Hughes who now is the runs the program at Michigan. And, uh, and that, that's when we expand start expanding staff.
0: At the very beginning, you came in 77, and that was, I think, Fran's fourth full recruiting class uh, that he had had. He came here in 73. And those were the first guys that would be graduating at that time. Uh, did, did the football and the basketball coaches use you uh, in the recruiting of it, like bringing in a kid – that were you the one that they leaned to and say, "Hey, you got to check his transcript. You got to tell us if this guy's going to be eligible in two years based on what he did in high school." You know, at
2: that point, it really didn't happen that way. The registrar's office handled all that stuff, and I'd go over and meet with them, and they would talk to me who had issues and who didn't, and I'd go back to coach and say who had issues. But they, the admissions office, really worked with a lot of that, and um, you know, it was a it was a situation where. The coaches would pretty much, what I dealt with was the day-to-day academics, trying to make sure these kids were getting their right courses and heading toward a degree. And it was a learning experience. When I came in 77, I can tell you, it was a, a rude awakening. First thing I did is took all the transcripts of all the football and basketball guys and started looking at them, and it was, I was like, and I looked at Roger Peterman, who had played football at UK, was my GA. He was in law school, my GA for football. Daryl Saunders, who played baseball at UK, was my GA for basketball. I looked at those guys, and
0: I said, what? Is this? I, I don't know what to do here. So you had really several challenges. One is making sure they were eligible next semester. Another one is that they would stay on course to get their degree for the next year. And then, of course, there's still one that maybe coach didn't mind that much, but you wouldn't see these kids get their degrees as well. Even though they'd played their four years, you still want them to get a degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't come from the coaching. I
2: came from a counseling. I mean, that was my whole idea. That's the reason I took it was I thought I can change these kids' lives. And if they have an issue, and, and I can tell you, I was a rookie. I mean, I sat there the first time, and I had this one kid who was in summer school, and he's not going to class, and I called the professor out. The professor says, I haven't seen him. And I, and I thought, well, why hasn't he come in here and seen me if he's got an issue? You know, you're, you've learned quickly your typical counseling where someone comes to you if they have an issue. doesn't work in athletics. You go to them. And... I, it was funny because Miss Sampson. I said to Miss Sampson, "I cannot understand why this guy hasn't been in here yet. He's got this issue with his history class." And she said, "And by God, he won't either unless you go get him." And that was the first lesson I had was from Miss Sampson. I went out there and grabbed the guy, and brought him in. And then I realized this is a whole lot different than what I thought. You know, now she had been over there many, many years. She'd been there before me twenty years, probably worked over in football for years. Yeah. Uh, what kind of a role did she play throughout? You know, she was almost like a mom. I mean, she really was. The kids liked Miss Sampson. I mean, and I—it's funny because back then we were so small. I'd say Miss Sampson, call her the dorm and get so and so and whatever. And I can remember one time she called and she—you know—Miss Sampson was real country. And she's like, she called over and she said, uh, "Can you get him? I gotta talk to him." And he said, well, "He's in the shower." She said, "All right. Well, tell him to call me. He gets out." And she waited about twenty minutes. She called back and said, "Hey." I gotta to talk to someone. So he said, "Well, he's still in the shower." And she said, "Oh my God!" She waited about twenty minutes. She called back again, and the guy said, "Well, he's still down in the shower." She said, I better go get him because I think he's gone down the drain.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that was just typical her humor, and the kids loved her throughout the last thirty, forty years. A lot of athletes go straight, and they want what we call "crip courses," whatever. Uh, how much of a challenge of you say, son? You can do better than this, no. uh, and and and. Did you, as far as majors and minors, uh, did did you have any run in with the coaches where they say, "Hey, Bob, I just want him eligible"? Well, I've had some coaches that weren't as academic as others, but I think that's
2: normal, and um, it's kind of how they come through the system. You know, I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I had the greatest job in the world when I had when I had Joe B. Hall and Jerry Claiborne, and CM Newton. You couldn't get better than that. I mean we held everybody everybody was accountable and we held kids to task all the time and it was and it was really a, a a really sound, good operation at that point. But you know, a lot of these kids have been told since they're little they're gonna be in the NFL or NBA and they and, and they just don't see the need of a degree. They don't think they need it. And that's the hard part is convincing them. And what you find is a lot of kids when they hit that junior year, there's an awakening. They're not as good as they thought they were. They start to worry a little bit. And you got to keep them on track and keep after them. You always laugh, Oscar, because I always people talk about you know crib courses, easy courses, and bunnies, you know, and everything. Athletics knows nothing about those more than the fraternities or sororities or anybody else. And you don't find faculty that are—I haven't found, ever found faculty that are just athletic faculty. What I found is that the ones that are not that demanding aren't demanding to anybody. They don't just pick out an athlete. They're not demanding to the. The kid that's in a fraternity, or the, the course is just easy. You didn't have any North Carolina professors over here at the university? I, I'll tell you what, I don't, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I never had to deal with that kind of thing, thank God. But, you know, the degrees, what you find is the kids, they start out, and if they want a certain degree, and this was one of the things I've always said, if a, if a young person comes in, I want to major in business. And maybe his ACTs don't look like that, or his high school grades don't look like that. I don't, I, I told our staff, I've always told our staff, you don't discourage them. You let them go for whatever they, they're after. But we'll give them a course. You give them economics. You give them accounting. And they come in and they go, I can't do this. Now it's
0: their decision. And you want it to be their decision to switch majors, not yours. Early on, uh, and I think they've changed this over the years, you could change your major so quickly just to get the, under-level courses to get to good grades. Wasn't there a point in time where they didn't allow you to change majors as often to say, Well, they've done that now. It's it's harder now to change majors. They have certain
2: dates that you can do it and stuff. You used to be able to switch whenever you wanted to, and that was, you know, that was fine. Um, You know, it's funny. I I don't find the... uh, I never found all the stuff that you hear out in the public like, oh, they got the test. They got this. I had an economics professor call me up once and say, Bob have you got like all the old tests for economics? My daughter's having some problems. Or he went, no, he was a math professor. His daughter was taking economics. Said, you know, do you have an old exam she could look at? And I I said, I don't have any exams. And he went, really? Well, faculty, we all thought you all had all the exams, the old exams. Used to be the library had all the exams. They would keep a files of, they had a room called the AIDS room. They had all these files of all the old exams. Professors just send them over and say, put them in there. So, you know, there was no different access. And what's funny is I went to a Christmas party with friends about, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I'm at this Christmas party, and somebody introduced me to a guy that does academics with the athletes of Kentucky. And this one guy goes, well, I'm sure glad you're there because I was in school in the 80s, and they had all the tests. (laughs) And they had everything, and I thought to myself, I said, oh, gosh, that's terrible. You know that that never should have happened. I'd have never let that happen. He went. He never. He didn't realize I was the guy that was there in the eighties. You know,
0: how how uh, at what stage did colleges, in particular University of Kentucky here, did you start getting involved in the process of helping coaches in the various sports determine where the kids they were recruiting were kids likely to be able to succeed in college? Well, usually that's sport by sport too, because in, in some of the sports you don't
2: even worry about it, because you know you're swimming, you're even your baseball a lot of time. You're very few of those kids are at risk kids. Most of your at risk are in the football and basketball area, typically. Not all. There's some in each sport, a few, and that's why I had those coaches coming up to me and saying, "Bob, I'm worried about this kid." But I'll tell you, Oscar, I'd have I had the swim coach come to me one day, and his average his average GPA on his swim team was about a 3.4. That was when Paul. Yes. It was about a 3.4, and almost all of them were major in engineering because I'd lift in the same room they lifted in, and I'd go in there, and they'd be talking about their thermodynamics. Boy, that test was hard. <laughs> and, I, and he came to me and said he's really worried about this kid. And I looked at the kid he was worried about, and I said, yeah, I'll work with him, not a problem. And I thought this could be the easiest thing I ever did. This kid's ACT was about a 26, and he was a, I mean, he was a bright kid, really bright kid, and he was worried about him because he wasn't like the engineers. Right. It's all relative what these coaches think, you know what I mean? And they get scared about kids they really probably
0: don't need to. What kind of effort or what kind of time did you devote to a kid to come in, say, in an Olympic sport rather than a minor sport, Olympic sport, and like you said, they're off the charts on GPA, they're off the charts on ACT, and you know that they're going to be a very um, high-level success after college, and these guys are not looking to make – the 2.0, or the 2.5, they're looking to get as, get up close to a 4.0 so they can go on and get postgraduate. Well, it's like I was saying before we went on the air here that, you know, for 25 years
2: I did football and basketball. For the last nine, eight or nine, I've done men's and women's swimming. We have some unbelievable students in men's and women's swimming. But I probably spent, have you asked those kids, I spent as much time with those kids as I did with any of the others because now you're planning what's your future, where you're going. This morning I wrote a recommendation for one of our swimmers. All right, He's going to the uh, career tour. The SEC career tour needed a recommendation to get involved in it and asked me if I'd write him a recommendation. So I wrote one this morning for him. But he's a high-end accounting major. He's going to do very well. So each of the counselors spend a lot of time with those kids, but it's just different goals. I mean, sometimes you're trying to get kids up to speed and sometimes you're looking at, okay, which professional or graduate school are you thinking about? So you run the gamut as, a, as an academic counselor with athletes. You don't just focus on kids that are just low. That doesn't happen. Probably initially when I started, that was the case because I had football and basketball as just me. And so I was taking just the kids from the other sports that were struggling and, and trying to – you know what's funny? More than, you know, I just retired and I had that retirement party and all these kids came back. And I mean, David Bensema, that was a, a track kid, and, and all these different kids from different sports came back and stuff, and I was just astounded and everything, and they came in, and Donna Offinger, a gymnast. But I was, it's funny, when I had to do all the sports, I was close to a lot of those kids, because, and the, you know what's funny to me, Oscar, is the really good student will come in and ask you one question and you'll solve it and go, you know, okay, yeah, I think you ought to do this and go over there, see this person, I'm gonna call them for you, we'll get you over there, let's get over and check on this and get it done. And they will remember you the rest of their life as you were the biggest guiding factor they ever had in college. You know what <laughs> I mean? And you can work 24-7 with another guy, and he thinks like, oh, boy, this guy's just a pain.
0: How much has the average athlete changed as far as attitude toward academics uh, over the last 40 years as it pertains to athletics?
2: You know, I think they're much more sophisticated now, and I think many of them are um, more serious about, about school now. Not at the level of the very good student, but much above what it used to be. Uh, you know, it was amazing when I started in '77. There were times I would have kids come in, and, and especially kids from either rural poor families or inner city families that would come in, and, and you know, there'd be a mom with them that never went to finished high school, and you know, didn't understand anything about the system. And I told one of my counselors, who's African-American, Darren Bilberry, that was with me for years. Darren played for Jerry Claiborne. But Darren and I were talking one time. I said, you know what, Darren? I said, it's interesting. I've seen this evolve over the years. And now, you know, in my last years, the the rural kid or the inner city kid, parents have been to college or graduated from college. So that's changed. it. Access to education changes everything it's so important. It'll change your state. So it changes athletics, too, that these parents are more aware of how education works.
0: I remember back in the 70s and and even 80s, maybe early 90s, uh, we didn't hear too much about team GPAs. I mean, it was mostly the individual. And all of a sudden, we started hearing about GPAs of the team. When did you first see that in your career? And Discuss how that has changed in the eyes of the public. Well, I think it's, yeah,
2: some of it is the public pressure for that. But, you know, team GPAs are not an accurate estimate of how your team's doing, actually. Guys, and CM Newton would never do team GPAs. He told me, I'm not doing them. And then we evolved into it later, into the GPA stuff. You know, the paper would get involved. they call you and say, what are the GPAs? But we, he would never do it because he said, "You know what? If I've got a golf team and they're all majoring in accounting and engineering and whatever, and
1: and, and they've got a two
2: six, in... and I've got another team that's not majoring in any of that stuff, they're majoring in less demanding campus Well, yeah, and they and those ones are uh, three point two. Who's smarter? Who's the better team? And so it's not it's not real accurate.
0: And I know the NCAA has gotten involved in some of this and about GPAs and at one point." It was known all around the country how a coach, particularly in basketball and football, would load up their team with walk-ons. And if you had a 3.8, you could be a walk-on.
2: Well, i you say that.
0: Yes. And then later on, the NCAA said, no, 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 your GPA is only going to be on your scholarship players. Uh, was that just another ploy for maybe coaches to make you think that their athletes were?
2: Well, that just shows you that GPAs can be misleading. And, I mean, Al McGuire used to say his last two guys on the bench were his GPA guys. They'd ask him, and he'd say, oh, those two are my GPA guys. They keep the team GPA up. So, you know, yeah, that's not unusual. That's, you know, and I I don't think there's much of that now because probably because they use the scholarship. But but,
0: but as it it goes around all the time, particularly with college, big-time college football and basketball, you're looking for ways. And now – it's got to be a big deal and about all of these coaches' salary packages. They get bonuses for GPAs.
2: You know, CM used to say, we're not doing that. It's an expectancy. We expect the kids to graduate, and we expect the coaches to be a force in graduating them. And so we're not going to do that. But now they're all doing it. It's like everybody gets caught in, in that deal. You know, the agents, I guess, for the coaches, know that that's I part mean, of the package.
0: I mean, because... You're doing your job at another department. Yeah.
2: Well, actually, I heard of one of the coaches in the conference in the SEC. Went up to his academic guy and said, "What what is this APR thing? And the guy said, he told him what it was and everything, and he said, well, he said, I, got, I just got a, I think it was $10,000 or $15,000 bonus for, for APR. He said, hell, here. He wrote him a check and gave it to him and said, I don't have anything to do with that. And gave the academic guy the check.
0: Uh, did you ever get one of them? I didn't get one of those. <laughs> The,
2: uh, but our the, counselors probably should. Our counselors. Well, have. I was
0: going to be my next question. Did your counselors or your tutors? I guess that's one in the same. Did no, they they're ever, different. Th- did they ever get bonuses? No. Based on how the the athletes did?
2: No, 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 no. How, how big? No.
0: A, how big a department is Kets?
2: Well, when we today? started, when we started, you know, it was me, and then I uh, we had two GAs, and then they gave me a third GA, and we went like that for a while until we. We came out with the cat center, the academic center.
0: Now, did you have any tutors in addition to them? Oh yeah,
2: we had tutors and and Miss Sampson. Is ran, that pretty much Miss Sampson called the tutors and okay. said, "I need you, you, know, I need you to be there at such and such time to try." And your to,
0: tutors were other students?
2: Yeah, students and some people that were adults that were out in the community that mm-hmm. wanted to tutor. We'd hire and we'd have back then maybe twenty or thirty or forty tutors. Now we have got one hundred eighty sometimes. One hundred eighty so, tutors. Yeah, and they're all just paid piecemeal by how much they tutor. Whatever they do. Pay about the hour? It's great, yeah. It's great for the students on campus, graduate students and that, because they can work it around their schedules. So they can come in and tutor in the morning before class, come back in the evening if they want to. They can work it around their their general schedule. But, you know, we, we actually, when I hired Barb Denniston and when Cliff allowed me to hire Barb and Phil, and then we increased our GAs as time went on, and now we're about full and part-time. We're probably 25 people and cats. It's a pretty big operation now.
0: What do you consider your uh, best achievement in your 40 years in working within the department and the program that you've sort of taken from its infancy up to where it's at now? The kids
2: I touched. I think every counselor would tell you that. The kids you touch, the lives you change. And when kids look at you, and I've got tons of these cards. My wife keeps them of all these cards and things and notes kids sent me in emails and saying, I wouldn't be where I am today if you hadn't done this for me. That's that's far and away number one. You know, and, and, uh, you know nobody, I've always said this, and I said this actually at my retirement party, and, and Cliff was there. Cliff Hagen came to the retirement party. And you know, people always give me credit for starting that CATS program, which was the first academic center in the country for athletes. And I said, nobody does it alone. And I don't know where anybody thinks they do something alone. People help you and people come in and add things in. When you're, when you're creating something, usually you never create it alone. Somebody comes in and says, hey, how about if you did this and you add it in? So everybody has parts of it. I came up with that idea of having an academic center only because we'd been at LTI and we had built a career center. And when we moved over to the Coliseum, I had one morning I came to work and there were 80 some kids sleeping on the floor out in front. I thought they were there for tickets. And I said, are you guys here for tickets? And they said, no, the computer glitched. We got kicked out of our classes. And I just went, no. And they said, yeah. It happened last night. We called our coach. They said, go see Bob. So all the athletes. This is when I was just doing football and basketball. And all the athletes were out in the hallway. And Cliff came down. And he was right down the hall from where I was in that little cubby hole back in there, where J.R. Heisel and all those people were. And he came, he came down there and he said, uh, what, what is going on here? He said, I've got a bunch of our big donors coming. And he said, I can't have these kids. They're sleeping. He said, they're sleeping out in the hallway. And he said, you've got to move them. And I said, and I'm alone. The GAs don't know how to advise. So it's me and the two GAs, and I'm sitting there with one kid, one at a time, trying to do a schedule with them and trying to find classes that are open. And that's back when they had the cards up around the concourse and the Coliseum. You went up and got your cards, pulled cards for your class. And I, I was sending kids up and down. I'd say, go look for this. Find a section of this. Go look for this. And I'm saying, Cliff came in and said, you've got to move them. And I said, Cliff, he goes, there's a warehouse on the other side of the building. He said, Go over there, you can take them all over there and spread them out and start working them. So I went over there and, and we set up tables and, you know, no, e- echoed the whole day. We all had headaches by the end of the day because it was just a big warehouse and that became cat. But well, what happened is that's when I thought of this would be a great place for academics for the kids. This is just a warehouse, nobody's using it. And we could turn this into something. We you know, back then we were doing study hall over on campus in the cafeteria and, and uh, the, the women's dorm cafeteria in the basement in, in uh, Donovan Hall. And we were doing tutors in the library, and we were running back and forth. And I had my GAs running over to make sure the kids were meeting their tutors. How much did
0: the catch center cost when they built it?
2: Well, I'll tell you what, Cliff is the guy that went behind. When I took it to him, he finally said, you know what, we need to do this. And so he went to the board, and he told me to get ready, that we're going to have to present to the board and everything. And I had some renderings made. And I took them with me. And, like and little, what year was that? That was uh, 81. Took them in. And, I, and, of course, they're sitting at the athletics board meeting. So the president's at the head of the table. All the board, which included a, a faculty, a couple faculty members, a student, an X, K letter person. And then the rest were all gazillionaires, right? They're all wealthy people. And so I go, and I'm ready. I'm prepared. I had them set up an easel down at the end for me. And... And we walk in, and I'm sitting on the outside. I'm out in the chairs around the table. And uh, Dr. Singletary says, well, Cliff, I understand that you have a proposal for a uh, new academic center, something for the kids academically. And it was so funny because back then nobody could even say "academic academics. It didn't didn't even think of it. Like even Cliff said to me when he called me and said, you know that thing you're always talking about? I said, what thing? He goes, that thing, that thing for the kids. I said, "I, I don't know. He said, you know, the thing for them to study. I said, the academic center? He went, yeah, get some drawings of that. But, I mean, he was all behind it. He got behind it. So we go there, and Dr. Singletary, I didn't realize, you know, when presidents go in these board meetings, they've got everything already. They know the votes. When they go into these things, they know their votes. Yeah. So he goes, well, Cliff, uh, what is it? Cliff explained what it was, and Dr. Singletary said, okay, do I have a motion? Somebody said, so moved. Do I have a second? Second. Okay, all in favor? Aye. Okay, he says, thank you, Bob, you can leave. So I picked up my little pictures and
0: walked out. Looked like an idiot, walk it out. How did you feel when you left the building that day, oh. knowing that it was done
2: now? Well, it was mixed. I was a little scared because now i got to figure out how this thing goes, how we're going to set it up. It's on your shoulders. We're organize it. But we had, he, it was funny because Dr. Singletary said, Cliff said, we need about $50,000, I think he said 46000 to renovate this area to make it an academic area back then. And uh, doctor, no, sorry, it was approved. And back
0: then, your whole budget was maybe two million. Oh, mine was,
2: yeah, in athletics. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was gonna say mine was about twenty-seven thousand or something. Yeah. But anyway, they um, so they turned around and he proved it. Uh, they start building it, and the project manager comes in to me and he says, Bob, we're thinking about, you know, we just have those tin lights hanging down, and I thought that's okay. I just want lights. We'll put high watt bulbs in them. But I thought, you know, and he said we're thinking about doing fluorescent box lights, and I said, really? I said, it looks great. I've been over there. It looks so nice, the walls you put in and everything, and I said, box lights would be beautiful. I said, you know, but do we have it in the budget? He said, well, we're already spent 100000 and I went, no way. I'm in charge of this, and I got 46000 and he said, I talked to, my boss talked to Cliff. Cliff said, just keep going. Do what you have to do to get it right, make it right, so it ended up a a really nice, area. I mean, a lot of schools would like to have that area now.
0: You know, there, there's some people that shouldn't listen to this, that a lot of the things that Cliff Hagen done went totally out of the public's view back then.
2: Cliff cared about the kids. I'm going to tell you something. I think Cliff, and you've heard that story, Cliff may not have had the greatest life growing up. I don't know all that, but I've heard stories. And Cliff cared. I mean, he really cared that, you know, that these kids had things in life. He, Cliff Hagan's a great guy. Cliff, Cliff, I think, was, you know, I think sometimes he was more shy than people realized. Even though he was the all-American and he was everything, he wasn't that guy that was just out there arrogant and all about himself. He just was quiet and shy, and so he would stand sometimes by himself, and people would think, oh, that guy's arrogant. It's crazy.
0: He was a good person. Oh, without question. Your biggest three on the 40 years from... Interacting with different kids, was there a moment where you thought, "Wow, this would have never happened to me if I'd been electrician, if I'd been a teacher, well, if, if I'd, I'd been a been counselor,
2: a... anywhere else, it wouldn't have happened." But I mean, I've had kids that that I've had kids that are um, successful, and I feel like I was a part of it, you know. And I mean, guys that I've gotten really, really close to. I mean, I have, you know, there, there's a guy Keith Martin, who's, who's director of finance and operations for the NCAA out of Owensboro, that played football for us. And, uh, and became director of finance and operations, you know, and got his accounting degree, and I hired him, and he, and he got his MBA while he was working for me as a GA, and, and then went on and ended up at the NCAA, and, and his, I was in his wedding, he was in my wedding. That wouldn't happen, you know? And a kid, Ron Bejelid, who became third, people don't realize, he became third in Olive Garden in, in North America or international, wherever they are. He was third in the company. You know, he's retired now. Keith has left the end, retired from NCA too. These guys made enough money, they could retire. I had to keep working.
0: What was your biggest disappointment?
2: I don't know if I've ever thought about that, Oscar. Whether I've never had something that I just looked at and said that. Gee whiz, that's horrible. That's dis- I think maybe my biggest disappointment was when Jerry Claiborne retired. That tore me up. I bawled. I mean, I walked in his office and I bawled. And I told him, you can't leave. These kids need you. They need you so badly. He was the most incredible, he changed my life. I mean, I was picked to speak at his roast in Hopkinsville and they had a guy from his high school, played high school football with him and a guy played college football with him and me. And uh, you know, he was so proper. And I got up there and I, and they had a picture of him in a wrinkled t-shirt, tennis t-shirt, because he played on the tennis team too. And I held up that picture and I said, Coach, I said, this is a little disappointing for me. Look at your shirt. Oh, he got all flustered. <laughs> they they came and got me from football practice to take the tennis picture, and they threw that shirt on me, and I was embarrassed. I can't believe they did that and made me stand there and that shirt all wrinkled and everything. But he was, listen, when Jerry Claiborne came, he called me up and he said, Bob, can you teach me what a transcript is? A Kentucky transcript. So I went over and met with him. He said, Can you give me all the transcripts? So I made a book of them for a binder and uh, it was funny because he, he had a half hour meeting with each kid. And I mean, there should be a book written by Jerry Claiborne for coaches, a manual on how to do it right. He had a half hour meeting with each kid and the first kid, I did I guess he did it alphabetically, it was Ron Bajelli. And Ron's a kid that grew up in, in Western Pennsylvania, hard nosed kid, 235 pounds and started offensive guard and was captain, offensive captain. Great kid. But you know, he didn't work as hard as he could. And I was always on him. He had to work hard. And he just, oh, Mr. B. And then Claiborne calls me first. He has his half-hour meeting with Claiborne and walks in, doesn't have any socks on. Coach Claiborne goes, hey, he, he ain't got any he ain't got any socks on. You need to get some socks. <laughs> and so he goes, Well, he says, Go go to the dorm, get some socks. You run over the dorm, get some socks and get back here. I wouldn't go in your house without socks. So he walks out, and the kid waiting in line to go next had socks, so he took his socks. And I kidded Coach Claiborne at that roast. I said, you know what, Coach? You saw the same pair of socks about 35 times that morning. But he met with Ron, and Ron said he spent 25 minutes on my transcript. Why did you get a C in this? You should have gotten a B in this. Why? Explain to me, because you didn't work hard enough. And he said he went through my whole transcript. He said he went over everything I needed to do to be a better person, and in the last two minutes of that he said, You're a football player, Ron. You know how to lift. You know how to work out and get in shape. I don't have to tell you those things. Now get out of here and let's do it. And he was incredible.
0: You know, the people always said he was old school. Oh, he was old school. But Jerry Claybron was Jerry Claiborne before old school was ever. Oh playing. yeah. Oh yeah. He loved to like meat. Yep. Wanted meat. Well block, tackle, meet. Yeah. Practice, well, they but I never forget once, and this was around eighty-seven or eight, right near the end, but not the end. And I was in his office one day doing something, and uh, he walked into his secretary Janetta. Yeah, and he said, Janetta, honey, I got to go buy a Christmas present for Faye, and she's told me what to get, but I don't know how to get to Fayette Mall. How do I get to Fayette Mall? I mean, his routine every day was home to practice, practice to home, practice to the airport, back to home. He didn't know where Fayette Mall was.
2: People don't realize that. Coaches are not involved in the whole university. Probably Jerry Moore because he went here. He knew where things were, classes and that. But like Bill Curry, when I talked to Bill Curry one day and I said, Bill, I said, you know, you need to come over to Woodrum Digger and this class. And he said, how do I get there? And I said, well, I said, it's the classroom building. He said, I don't know. He said, Bob, let me tell you what I know. I know from my house to here, from my house to the airport, from here to the airport, from here to the football center, and the football center to here. He said, I don't have time for anything else. That's all I know. So it really is interesting. But I want to tell you, with Claiborne, when I went to his roast, they, all three of us spoke. When I finished, these people in the race started raising their hands, and they said, can we ask Bob a question? And, this, and, I, and the guy said, will you take questions? I said, yeah, I guess. You know, I don't know why I'm being asked... But I stood back up and one of them said, will you talk about how great Coach Claiborne was and all the things Coach Claiborne did and how he's significant in your life and all that stuff. Tell us, you have one example that you can give us? And I don't know why I said this, Oscar. I have no idea. I said, but I said, you know what? I said, there's a lot of times I'd go in a restroom to wash my hands. And I'd wash my hands and get the paper towel and dry them and be in a hurry. And I'd throw them. And if it went in the basket, fine. If it missed, I might not pick it up. I might, but I probably wouldn't. I'd leave. I said, after Jerry Claiborne, I not only go in a restroom and I pick up all the towels around the basket and throw them away, then I wash my hands and I throw that one away. Now, I don't know what that means, but, that but thing Jerry Claiborne did that to you. me. Well, it's pride. It's doing the right thing. And I would do that. Remember the old press box? Remember oh, yes. all those tight paper towels we oh, all used? Yes. Okay. I used to go in there and pick them up. I would go in there and pick up those paper towels and throw them in that big garbage can It was in the corner there. When he went out of the men's room, and then I wash my hands and leave. But that's Jerry Claiborne, and it was it was I don't get it myself, but it's something about pride, about doing the right thing, and that's what he's about. The First thing he took the job, you know, he walked in the locker room and the kids would cut their tape off and it would after practice and just leave it on the floor. for but The thing
0: he today when they had the headphones and all of that. What do you mean? What with the players today with the headphones oh, and everything. My God. I don't know. I don't know they, Those would be right locked period. away. They wouldn't be around. They'd
2: be locked away quite a bit.
0: Over your forty years at Kentucky, your favorite Kentucky basketball team?
2: Probably the first one with Rick and, and Kyle and you know, and, Seventy-seven,
0: seventy-eight. Oh yeah.
2: I mean you know that's my first year and we went ten and one in football and we won the NCA championship.
0: And the best game you've seen Kentucky play in your career?
2: Well, Penn State would rank up there in 77 home basketball. Oh, God. You know, that that I can't take anything away from that first year, that Duke game. I mean, because I got to go. I had no idea I'd get to go to any of these things. And, you know, Larry Ivey says, You're going on the plane, you know, to the to the NCA finals. And I said, I am. I was like stunned. And, you know, and he said, Yeah, he said, Bob, you're part of this. You're on the plane. And so I'm on the plane to St. Louis and the Checker Dome, and I remember sitting there thinking, I can't believe I'm here. So that stands out to me as as probably. The other games that really stand out is when Rex Chapman was here, and we, we played like Ole Miss on Saturday, and then we played a Sunday. It was a Saturday-Sunday, and we played Oklahoma.
0: Oh, you yes. Remember that? Uh-huh. Yeah. It was
2: two games right in a row, and he won, he had the winning game-winning basket in both games right at the buzzer. It was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like that.
0: Kentucky football, your favorite team. I know what you're going to uh, say, but I No, Well, it's not
2: 77. Oh, it's not? No, they're, my, they're some of my favorite guys. You know what the funniest thing is? I was just a little older than those guys. And, you know, and they were like, and I, it was hard trying to get them to do things, the ones that didn't want it. They looked at you. And I would little, like, you tell oh, yeah. me? <laughs> Oh, I can tell you. And, of course, Frank Downing was before me and Frank Downing. had, You know, he was older and he was bald. Mm. And, I mean, I came in and I look like I'm about 23 when I'm, you know, when I'm 28. And they thought and I, you were probably oh, a lot greater than... Listen, I can remember the first guy I walked into in the train. I was looking for this guy because he, he, had, he had, hadn't had had completed a correspondence course. Fran, first thing I got there, Fran took me. He said, okay, we got five guys, got issues. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm like, I don't know anything about the job. And he says, we got five guys, got issues. So I'm running over campus, talk to deans, trying to figure out how things work, what could happen, whether those kids could make things up. But one of the kids had a correspondence course and he was a smart kid. He didn't care about school, but you know what he'd do? He had his room was full of paperback books. He read constantly. And uh, I walked up to him in the training room. I walked in and I said, is so-and-so here? And this guy goes, yeah, I'm here. And I said, oh, I said, uh, listen, my name's Bob Bradley and I took over for Frank Downing and his eyes lit up like, oh my God, this is like easy street right here. Look at this guy, this is gonna be a lot easy. So he walks around and puts his arm around me and walks me into the trainer's office and shuts the door in front of some people and he says let me take you in my office and show you you know how things work and we walk in that office and I shut the door and I said get your arm off me and I said why are you trying to embarrass me I said I'm brand new I said you're trying to embarrass me already right off the bat and he went no man I was just being funny I was just and I just lit into him like you know a little bit and and he backed down, and he became one of the kids that really took care of The next day, he went and took the correspondent. Fran said, I can't get him to take the exam. He won't take the exam. And the next day, he goes and takes it. I don't know why, but he did. <laughs> and Fran goes, Fran, I went over there to the football office. Fran goes, that's unbelievable. I can't believe you got it. How'd you get him to do it? I said, I don't know. I just asked him to go take it. You know, so it was, it was different coming in then. But, so those guys, but you know what's funny? Those are the guys, I mean, that I'm really close to. A lot of those guys, you know. You don't remember who that
0: individual was?
2: Oh, I do. I'm not going to say his name, but I, (laughs) I, yeah, I remember all of them. But it, but you know, it was, uh, you know, and and it was just amazing that that those guys later would all call me and come back and look me up, and you know, it was great.
0: So, your favorite all-time Kentucky football team?
2: You know, probably that '84 Hall of Fame Bowl.
0: Beat Wisconsin. Yep. But Our those team. were
2: just, yeah, we were nine and three. People don't realize that. People don't think about that. That kind of slipped under the radar. And it was.
0: I think it had to come from behind at halftime. And, to win yeah, it. we did.
2: And there were only, you know, back then there were like. Bill 12, There were like 12 bowls in America, yeah. Oscar. Yeah. Think about it. It wasn't 40 bowls. There were like 12 bowls in America you could go to. And, you know, people didn't realize. I mean, people don't think about that now. They don't think back to when there weren't any bowl games. There were very few. And so that was quite an honor to go there. But those were the kids, you know, the, the kids that I, I talk about that I, would, I ended up really,
0: really close to on that team. Best U.K. football game you've witnessed your 40 years. Well, I don't separate
2: things that way. You're asking me tough questions because I don't, I don't ever separate them out there, which is the best football game in Well, it'll probably be that Penn State game. Probably be that it was just unbelievable when we beat Penn State up there. You know, it's funny. It rained. Bad weather. Well, it rained the whole game,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then Dallas Owens intercepted a pass and took it in for the touchdown, and the sun came out. It was unbelievable. And the sun, all of a sudden the sun comes out, and everybody's just looking around going, holy cow. I mean, we were singing my old Kentucky home at the end of that. And actually the best basketball game I ever saw, and I think about it, one of the best was Kansas. When we beat Kansas with Dwight Anderson and, and, and Kyle Macy and Dwight blocked the inbound it shot with like six seconds or something, threw it to them, and Kyle hit it, and they called timeout, and they didn't have one. And it was a technical.
0: Valentine.
2: And we beat them. Yes. And uh, that was pretty unbelievable. And that was the day that Clark Kellogg made his official visit.
0: Oh, was that right? Yeah.
2: I thought we had him. I said, because the whole state was the loudest game I'd ever been to in Rupp Arena, and everybody started singing my old Kentucky home at the end. And I thought, well, this kid, he didn't go. And they had, you know, they did all the recruiting stuff. They had a cake for him in the lodge. They had his, his jersey up and they had, you know, and, I mean, it was the whole deal. And I thought, gosh, this kid must be really good. You know, that's what I always laugh about is everybody says to me, like when something happens, they'll say, well, you should, you know, he was a really good player. You should have known who he was. And I said, when the NCAA, when we had our investigation, they said, well, you know, you should have known who that kid was. He's really good. And I said, every player we bring here is good. I don't ever look at bad players at this place
0: Did, did, did you always have good support uh, with the the various coaches at u k and supporting things you'd want to do and what was there you talked a little bit earlier about a little bit of it, but uh, were there professors that coaches would want you to put kids in like that? and then speak a little about, about what happened at North Carolina, and could that happen again somewhere?
2: Well, yeah, I think it could happen. I mean, it's, I don't, I I found that from a different perspective, Oscar, because, you know, I I guarantee you, I don't, I'm not sure of this, I shouldn't say it probably, but, and this is, this is without any expertise, but there are probably professors in the university that have had people that work in their office, grade papers, or maybe multiple choice papers, but grade and do things, and there are people that are, I mean, they have assistants, they have these graders for classes all the time, And this lady that was working there in the African-American studies program had her degree and was working there for that guy. And he was traveling a lot. And, you know, I'm not saying that, that probably, I don't know if it's happened to that degree and I don't know how much she did. Uh, I know there were some good people that lost their jobs because of that. They weren't bad people. And I don't think they really felt like they were doing wrong things. And... Even the guy that was the senior associate athletics director for academics, John Blanchard, who's a very close friend of mine. John's very religious, full of integrity. I mean, just upstanding guy. And, you know, he 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 didn't get really caught up in it, because as soon as it happened, he went into Bubba McCunningham and the A. D. and said, I'm resigning. I'm out of here, I'm not gonna be involved. But you know, John said on the record that he had talked to the faculty policy committee for athletics he said he said twice and i don't think nobody could remember exactly because there weren't any minutes but he had brought it up because his staff had said something about this course that was being taught and he took it to them and they said well is it a ta teaching it because it was an actual course but they only had to do a paper for it right mm-hmm. so he said is you know he told them about it and they said they said is it a ta a teaching assistant And he said, no, it's a full professor. He's the chair of the department. I said, well, if he's chair of the department, he can do whatever
0: he wants. As a person who's been singled out many times as one of the leaders across the country in college athletics, being you on how to do things right and everything, do you think the NCAA should revisit this to where academics should be a part of NCAA rules versus what North Carolina says it should be left up to the school?
2: Well, I think that was kind of a general thing where it's, that's the NCA stance, is it's institutional. Academic rules are institutional. What I think should have happened is I think their accrediting association should have put them on probation for, or suspension or whatever for like five years. So anybody that went there, their degree wouldn't be accredited for four years. Now that would have stung. Even though people might still go to North Carolina, now you're going to a place, people, kids that can die, decide between North Carolina and Wake Forest and Duke and places. And now they go, do I really want to go there? Because my degree's not going to be accredited from there. Now, that, if their academic association is dead, but all they did is put them on probation for I forget how long, and then they took them off. And it really was an academic issue. It really was an
0: academic issue, I felt. How do you feel about the future of academics and athletes coexisting uh, at Kentucky and throughout college America?
2: Well, you know, I think it's always hard with sports where kids can go pro.
0: One I mean, and uh, done?
2: Yeah, I mean any of those. It's really hard, you know. I mean, one and done. You don't have them long enough. I mean, it's it's really they're taking basic courses. I mean, there's not much they can get into in the beginning. So that goes, you know. It's not an academic situation, really. It, you know, although I think they do benefit from being there.
0: Uh, let, let's take it and bring it really localized here. Nobody's a better example than Duke, Kentucky, in particular. Uh, How have you seen how it's worked at Kentucky with one and done? It seems like a lot of these kids have gotten a little bit more academic going around them than what they do at some places. In other words, for the most part, I think they've actually completed their full year of academic work. They don't just fly the coop in the middle of the second semester.
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I think, Cal, that was a – you're caught in a situation there. You have to make a decision what you're going to do. I will tell you, when John Calperi got hired at Kentucky, I called my buddy at Memphis, and I said, what am I in for? Because all you heard was all the, you know, all the baggage, all the, uh, the negative stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I called him up, and, uh, and he said, Bob – he said, I called Joe up at Memphis, and I said, you know, give me the scoop, Joe. I'm, I'm worried what I'm getting into here. And he said, Bob – He's been great. He's a great guy. You ask him to do something, you tell him about the kids, he gets after the kids, he's done. He said he's been great to work with. He said, you know, and he said he's 30,000 feet up looking for the next thing he can do that will be good for the community or good for the for the program. And he said he does a great job. And that's kind of been, it's really funny, but that that has been my, my uh, assessment of Cal at, at Kentucky. He's been great. He hasn't been hard to deal with. He's been good to deal with. I mean, I know our counselor for basketball, when he's had to go to Cal, you know, and they have the assistants watch so many of the kids. And when he goes to Cal, Cal gets after those assistants and says, you guys, you know, you, you guys need to take care of this in so many words. I mean, he'll he'll back us on that.
1: Our many thanks to Bob Bradley for chatting with Oscar on this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs. presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs Chow House. You've just finished listening to episode 81 and part two of the series will be episode 82, which will be released in the future. Many more great episodes of Conversations can be found at oscarcombs.com and those episodes can be downloaded to your mobile devices. To access all episodes for your mobile devices, search for at Wildcat News and iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Subscribe and episodes will be automatically downloaded and ready for you to listen to at your convenience. To follow Oscar on Twitter, he's at Wildcat News. I'm Bo Robinson, thanking you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. And as always, Go Big Blue.